the fact that it was so much bigger than me and it was to raise money for a bigger cause made me motivated to do that. I think we can all do something. Everyone can do a little bit and it's all relative to your reach or your capacity. But if you can help one person, that's already amazing. That is Jess Fox. Before I go into this episode's uh, introduction, I want to say that in the context of what's happening all around the world right now, my stance is that I want to be less words and more focused listening. You actually don't need to have my opinion. I'm listening to those who have lived with racism from its subtle form to its blatant manifestation, and all of this is wrong. I am committed to being better. I'm committed to creating space and opportunities for diverse voices with committed listening and constant awareness. And you will see this reflected in the guests that I have coming up in the podcast. I will aim to be doing better. And so without further ado, I want to introduce this humble young gun, Jess Fox, who has represented Australia since 2009 in canoe, C1W and kayaking K1W singles. Over the past 10 years, she has acquired over 26 World Cup gold medals, seven World Championship titles and two Olympic medals. She's a total badass. She was born to Olympian and multiple World Champion paddle parents and her achievements saw her surpass the record set by her parents and she earned the title of World's Greatest Paddler at the age of 25. She's had countless accolades and awards, but she's not just successful in the water. As a year 12 student at Blacksland High School, she finished her HSC year with an ATAR score of 99.1 and was named Ducks of her school. In this conversation, you know, we discuss her progression into the sport and the role that her family has played into her success and also the challenges that she's faced. We talk about how she's found her point of differentiation to be her own person. We really explore her mindset strategies, how she copes when things don't go to plan, how she's worked with the best of the best elite performance coaches such as Nam Baldwin, and how she took to the news that the Olympics is moved 12 months down the track, and how she's looking to reframe her new build-up. Uh, Jess Fox did a really incredible job engaging her own community through some other unique talents that she has during last summer's bushfire crisis. This is a great conversation. Jess is an incredible storyteller and I really hope you enjoy it. All right, guys, this is the second attempt at Jess and I doing this podcast uh, with a combination of interesting receptions uh, in the Danong Ranges and Jess's house being overrun by people doing Zoom calls. <laughs> We're both in our car. <laughs> Car's the place to be. I almost think it's uh, good that we started again because the last podcast basically started with me lowering all of my street cred for, you know, fast flowing water. So let's start with me sounding a bit more credentialed to speak to someone of your calibre. I couldn't do half the things you do, Sam. And and just the fact that you've done an adventure race that involved a bit of kayaking or rescuing or um, whatever it was that you had to do, I'm very, very impressed. Oh, well, I think if I went out with you, so I always race with guys and, you know, from the start of our conversation that we had before, you know, your sport has been a predominantly male dominated arena. When you were a kid training, um, when you kind of got into the sport, were there many other females doing it? 
Yeah, I guess I, well, when I started, um, I started with my parents who both used to compete in the sport and then later became coaches. And I remember starting out with mum taking a group of young 11, 12-year-old kids and um, my best friend at the time was part of that group. And I remember we buddy up because we were one of the only few girls in New South Wales or like in our area, in our club. And then we spent the rest of the time with the boys. Like it was very common to be paddling with the boys, to be training with the boys. So um, I've grown up paddling, racing girls, but a lot of the time on the water, there's a lot less girls than guys, that's for sure. I definitely want to later discuss, you know, the differences between men and women in your two sports. Um, I do know that you do the same runs, but let's go back to the beginning. You know, as a starting point, you grew up on the Mediterranean coast in France, which sounds particularly delightful um, considering right now I'm in the middle of winter in Melbourne. Um, but your family moved to Penrith, which obviously isn't France, but it is known as the adventure capital of New South Wales. So what year was that? Yeah, so I was born in Marseille in the south. My mum is French um, and my whole of my mum's side is French and my dad is English. So it could have gone any direction, really. We could have ended up in England or France, but the Olympic Games in Sydney 2000 is what brought my parents over here. And the whitewater course for the slalom event is in Penrith at the Penrith Whitewater Stadium. So my parents came over in 98. So the whole family moved out. My sister was quite young as well. She was only about 18 months old and I was four. And um, we were meant to be here for like 18 months or maybe two years. And their contracts got renewed and they were coaches. So their contracts got renewed. We started school and in the end, here we are 20 years later. So um, I still get to go back to France uh, to see the family, well, most of the time before Corona anyway. Um, And it's always good to have that connection. Yeah, how interesting. Like you've got, you know, most of your family based on the other side of the world. Was it, you know, what made your family, but I guess particularly your parents, fall in love with Australia and want to make this their base? Um, I think it's a combination of things. It was uh, the job here to be, you know, to be coaches, um, coaching the Australian team. They'd retired from sport only sort of a few years earlier. And the Australian lifestyle, you know, just the the weather is amazing compared to Europe. We don't really have winters. Um, And I think they, yeah, they really enjoyed their time here. And once we started school, they realised that the school system was also really good. Um, in France, it's very strict. And, you know, when I was going to school over there, missing a day of school as a five-year-old because your parents were going to a competition or something was like the end of the world. How, how could you miss a day of school? Whereas here, when I was seven, eight, and my parents were saying, you know, we've got to go overseas for our job. So the kids are coming with us to stay with their grandparents for two months in two, three months in France, and they'll go to school there. The teachers were like, that's wonderful. Wow, they're going to learn so much. You know, it was a lot more open-minded. So I think um, that was also quite um, appealing to them, you know, to be able to have the outdoor lifestyle that we have here and the education and the open-mindedness to still be able to travel and get those worldview experiences that we got as kids. Yeah, I love you know, the fact that your entire family are kind of connected to this sport, you know, from your parents being referred to as like Olympic royalty back (laughs) home, you know, your granddad signing you up to the local paddling club the day that you were born and your dad teaching you the basics and your mum, your mum's a coach, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah. So it is a family story. That's for sure. My, my earliest memories, 
the smell like you know how you remember smells as a kid so my granddad was yeah. the president of the canoe club in Marseille and so mum was still training after she had me she went back to training to try and qualify for the 96 Olympics um, and so my earliest memories are literally the pram on the gravel of the kayak club pushing me towards the water the smell of like resin and carbon and fiberglass that was used to build or repair kayaks which is probably not the best smell for a three-year-old to have but I remember that and and just like jumping on things and pontoons and the water and being around it and throwing rocks in the water so that was like my earliest memories um and then yeah when we came to Australia and I started to learn how to paddle it was the kayak didn't come with us on the weekends when we go up to the beach or um, go on holidays it was kind of like oh we're going kayaking again as kids we were sort of my sister and I a bit reluctant to to do the sport our parents did I guess only because it was on the flat water and that's probably a bit more boring than what I now do on the white water so once I did get to um, progress onto the white water as an 11 12 year old that's when I really fell in love with it and yeah like you said dad sort of taught me the basics um, the good technique the good posture and then mum being the national coach, I integrated her squad when I made the, the junior team and the sort of the AIS squad and ENSA squad. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a family um, family story and it's intertwined in our lives, but it's a shared passion that I'm really grateful for. Did Do your parents, like, recall that moment when you got onto the white water for the first time? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I was lucky because I got to go when I was in France um during the summers we'd sort of dabble in it so um the club would take the kids for three days to go run some rivers in um you know the Alps which was incredible just being part of a club and getting to go to those sort of places but my confidence is definitely not at the same level as some of these kids so when I came back to Australia um the whitewater here is really quite big there's no in-between easy basic level that you can learn on so it was either flat water or olympic course <laughs> it was quite a big jump so they definitely remember the first times i went down the rapids um just following them like a little duckling down the course and i guess a very um big moment for any paddler is the moment they learn how to roll so when you capsize and come back up because that means that you no longer, you know, get out of your boat and swim and have to rescue yourself. You can keep going because you've been able to roll back up and continue on with your course. So that moment as like a 12-year-old when you do your first live kayak roll is like ingrained in everyone's memories because it's like, woohoo, you know, it's like one of the most special moments. So they definitely remember that. Oh, my God, I love that. I love the idea of, like, the image of a 12-year-old like, <laughs> rolling over all the way and continuing on and, like, putting a fist in the air. Like, I can keep going. <laughs> and, you, and I remember practising in my swimming pool or on the lake for ages trying to get this roll, but then you would get onto the rapids and the fear sets in and you just forget how to do it and you never, you never pull it off. So the moment you do, it's like, yeah, I'll see that, you'll see that. <laughs> What was the transition point from, you know, really enjoying the sport and obviously being a part of the very professional world of your parents being part of the sport and going, now this is this is what I'm going to do for my career? Um, I guess, so like I said before, when I was a kid, I was a bit reluctant to throw myself into it. I didn't enjoy it as much and I was very much into gymnastics and swimming and I 
always been around the elite world and like the word Olympics was thrown into my vocabulary from a very young age and I was always and inspired by it and excited by it and I wanted to go there and it was probably in my head going to be in swimming um, until I broke my arm doing gymnastics and part of that rehab my physio said you should try a bit more to, to strengthen that arm up and so that kind of around that 11 or 12 years of age there was also the world championships in Penrith at that time um, where Robin Bell uh, from Australia won a gold medal at those world champs so just kind of the those events all ended up leading me back to kayaking and I jumped back in a boat and once I got on the rapids it was no turning back so swimming sort of faded away um, because this was way more exciting and I remember um, when I was sort of 13, 14, starting my first big national races and, and then my first international races, there was always this, um, in the back of my mind, you know, who my parents were. I, I knew who they were and how big they were in my sport internationally. And then just what if I'm not up to their level or, you know, there was a little bit of that pressure and expectation of people see me as the fox girl. What can she deliver? You know, what is she going to be? <laughs> Yeah, did did you guys speak about that? Because obviously you're following kind of in your parents' footsteps. Um, was there that just conversation of your parents trying to kind of encourage you to be your own person in that sport, or what, what did it? What was it like at home? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember if we ever had a conversation exactly like that. But I think they just, they just encouraged me to um, to work hard and to train hard if it was something that I was serious about and if I had goals, you know, to compete at the Junior World Championships, well, I needed to get there to do my best. So it didn't matter what they'd done, you know, the sport has changed. We were paddling, you know, more modern kayaks and also I was doing two events. So that was kind of my point of differentiation for me. It was like, I can do the kayak and the canoe event. My parents only did the, the kayak event, so... I'm now my own person and I'm going to pursue this by doing both. And that's my point of difference. And like, I guess that was the first big race was the junior world championships in France. I was 16 and um, I, it was in France. So I could understand what the loudspeaker was saying. And he was saying, you know, Jessica Fox, her mum was the princess, the queen of the water can just be the princess of the water. And just, you know, hearing this in the start line, you know, you're like, oh my God, don't add any more pressure, please. And just, yeah, I think they were really good at guiding me to just work hard and do the best that I could without comparing. Um, so it is something that I, that was with me when I first started, but I think, um, I'm very lucky to have them. You know, they've they've been such big influences in my in my career. Well, although we're not about comparison, I think it is. You know, I have to say that you are now the most successful individual paddler in the history. When you surpassed your dad's long-standing record of five world titles, when you got your six, and then you got your seven <laughs> pretty much straight away afterwards. So I'm going to toot your horn for you because you are incredibly humble. What was that moment like? Yeah, to be honest, I didn't even know about those um, records that, that, you know, to be the greatest paddler of all time. And I came into the 2018 World Champs and I'd had my best season ever. I'd won back-to-back gold medals at the World Cup in both events and that had never been done before. So I was coming into these World Champs quite um, 
yeah, the favourite and I had my own expectations as well. And I remember Ross Dolly, uh, one of the International Canoe Federation media guys coming up to me and saying, you know, that if you win today, <laughs> you will overtake your mum as the greatest uh, female canoe slalom athlete of all time. And if you win tomorrow, you'll overtake your dad to become the greatest athlete of all time. And I just remember thinking, oh, la, 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 la. Don't, don't talk to me about this. <laughs> you know, my fingers <laughs> in my ears. I just need to do my own race. Um, so that was the first moment I'd even heard about it. So uh, I don't think I thought about it in terms of I need to overtake them. It was kind of like, well, um, wow, that's pretty special that my parents held those positions and, and that it stays in the family, you know. Like it's, it's definitely been a team um, effort to get me to this point through my whole career from my family, but also everyone else around me. So um, it was a very special moment to share with everyone. Well, yeah, it's a, I think the fox DNA is obviously very strong on the water, but I do like that you kind of created that differentiation, you know, by doing both the kayaking and the canoeing, with the canoeing only becoming introduced into the women's field in 2010. For everyone, can you kind of give, uh, I guess, the contextualization for those two different sports and how they play out? Yeah, so my uh, sport is canoe slalom, and in Within that, I do two events, the kayak event, the K1, and the canoe event, the C1. And basically, the difference between those two are the boats and the paddles. So the boat, um, in the kayak, I'm in a seated position with my legs out in front, and I'm using a double-bladed paddle. And in the canoe, I'm actually in a kneeling position inside the boat and stuffed in, and I have a single blade. So we do the same course down the rapids. It's about 18 to 25 gates. But the, I guess, technique is what's different. And um, because in my sport, every river, every course is different. There's no PBs or world records. So it's very much about adapting on the day and and um, having the skills and the techniques to do any kind of course out there. I've got so many questions about that because how have you learnt to master like two entirely different techniques? Um, I think that the most important thing is the feel for the water and the grip on the blade and the paddle and just being able to it's kind of like in surfing where you can ride a wave and you feel you know exactly how the wave's going to move and where your board needs to be in in my sport it's all about the positioning so having that vision on the water of knowing where you need to go for the fastest line or the driest line um i guess i started in the kayak event um but when the canoe was uh, getting that push to become international an international world championship event and later on Olympic, I threw myself into it because there was a great group of us doing it. Um, and once you have the basics on the whitewater, you've got that confidence in the kayak, going into a canoe is quite daunting for that first, you know, those first few months while you get the balance right and the technique right. But once you're on the start line and, and you've built up that confidence and that technique, it's, it's the same sport. You've just got to switch it up you know it's kind of like doing one stroke it's like doing butterfly and then moving to freestyle there are similarities mm. but you know there's the subtleties that you've got to get used to and change it up so I do a lot of work in training where I'm starting in the kayak and then halfway through the session I'll jump into the canoe and I've got to adapt to it um, fairly quickly or other days I'll just split the week 50-50 I do kayak and then the rest of the week I'll do canoe. Do you have a preference? 
Oh, it's like asking who your favourite child is, that question. <laughs> I don't know if that depends on the day. <laughs> I, I love them for different reasons. Like the kayak event is, I guess, my first event and the one I've won, um, you know, the Olympic medals in. It's, it's a very special event to me, but it's also the one where I feel like I can really push myself to race like the boys and cut the lines and, um, yeah, my technique evolves closer to be like the guys and I can really push myself and it's more about the charging and the rhythm and the pace as well whereas in the canoe I've sort of had to develop my own technique where that really suits me um most of the time athletes would stay paddling on the one side but I didn't have the strength in my shoulders to do that so I used to switch sides so you know you paddle on your right side and then when that gets tired you go and you paddle on your left side and that really worked for me so I guess the canoe is different in that I'm still discovering and evolving my technique and I have to use the water a lot more and be more strategic because I don't have the same strength as in the kayak and I don't have that second blade to help me out when I'm in trouble. So, um, yeah, I like them for different reasons. I think the, the canoe event's a little bit more, um, a little bit more interesting for me at the moment to keep pushing and evolving. I remember reading somewhere that you were heavily critiqued uh, for what was considered an unorthodox style uh, in your paddling technique. Yeah, I think that stems from really a traditional mindset of this is how the men have always done it and continue to do it. And um, this is the technique. There's one technique. And like I said before, I didn't have the strength and I I didn't want to get injured by um, putting myself in positions where I wasn't strong enough to deal with the power of the water if I wasn't in the right position and and things can go wrong pretty quickly and shoulder dislocations happen a lot in our sports so for me it was out of fear and just this works for me and actually I can go pretty fast and faster when I do it this way than when I do it um, the traditional way of just staying on one side so that's where it came from for me and I'm lucky that our coaches were quite supportive of me doing that but overseas a lot of the athletes in the eastern countries where um I'm going to say they're a bit more macho and they're very much like, no, the girls can't do this. It's not a girl sport. And it's definitely changing now. But at the time, the girls didn't have the respect that the men had. And so those quotes of, oh, that's not the right way. It's not the real C1 technique. Uh, I remember them. And I remember thinking, well, you know what? I can go faster this way. This works for me, so I'm going to own it. And the best thing about it is that a lot of girls now use this technique because um, it is safer and it is more efficient. And a lot of the guys are now starting to implement it because they're sort of they're learning from us too. So it is pretty cool to to see the technique start to evolve. Oh well, firstly, we should call it the fox style. And <laughs> I can't claim it. I will- <laughs> You know, it happens time and time again, you know, the backlash and resistance that occurs when a sport opens up for females to be able to compete in it. You know, I reckon that backlash can manifest itself in different ways, you know, from limited funding, um, low spectator attendance, you know, the athletes themselves being uh, receiving a lower wage than their male counterparts, you know, critique for women that they're not strong enough to do the sport or perhaps that sport is too dangerous for women. I'll never forget when Mark Robinson, who was the chief football writer at the Herald Sun, and he was talking about AFLW, and he was talking about the women and describing their um, their abilities as an average standard, and he said that they were. It looked like they were playing in slow motion. The reality is that 
there is certainly going to be occasions when the technical aspects of the sport may need to be adapted uh, for the female form. Because there's no difference, like on the runs that you're doing, they're exactly the same as the guys, right? I think there are certain subtleties, like obviously, so it's a timed run, everyone goes down the course one at a time and there are gates and penalties involved. So if you hit a gate, it's a two second penalty. And if you miss one, it's a 50 second penalty. So what I notice is that the girls are more strategic in their race runs because they don't have the same strength and power to get themselves out of difficult situations that the men might have but we're getting closer and closer in terms of time so when there is a course that is quite um uh i guess technical and there are a lot of turns happening there's not that same space for the men to just sprint and muscle it out so that's where we kind of show that we are actually pretty much on par with technique it's just in strength that we are a little bit weaker obviously naturally um so I've, I guess some of my most memorable runs and my best races, I think the best part of those races have been when men have come up to me or male coaches have come up to me and said, you know, they take their hat off and they're like, that was, you know, technical expertise or mastery. Like that was beautiful to watch. Like those are, those are those moments that I remember as well. Like they're really special. You know, I, I can't help but think like of this comparison of your sport and like climbing where people who master a certain climb like and the particular route and they you know finesse a certain section of it and they'll you know do it again and again and again that little part and they'll break it into sections but you're saying each run in whatever you know event that you do around the world it's very unique how much well how does your training back home become comparable and and suit a different setting and how much time will you go to that particular scene of the race before it actually happens. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, literally, as, as you were asking me that question, I got a pop-up notification for Japan training camp that I was meant to leave for today. <laughs> so we were meant to go overseas to oh train on the Olympic course um, for the next two weeks. And this year had basically been planned out to do that uh, four times in the lead up to the Olympics. So that preparation on a course is really important to get used to the features because every wave feels different to where I train in Penrith or when I go overseas and train in France. And just getting used to that course is quite important. Um, There are skills that you can then transfer to any course in the world. And so that's what we work on at home. We're working on doing different courses every day. You're either cutting the course into quarters and working your way down or you're doing loops, which is when you do full runs around the course. And you know, there's a big technical element involved, even in the physical sessions, which requires a lot of mental focus to be able to, you know, under pressure of fatigue, still keep your technique and get all the gates in a, in a really good way. So that's kind of what we work on at home. And then when we go overseas, it's the more specific work. So before a World Cup race, we usually get there a week before and every, every team gets the same amount of training on the channel we try all different moves and possible combinations that we could that might come up in the race and then the day before the event they set the course so we haven't actually done the set gate for the race until we race so that's where visualization comes in and we walk the course with our coach we watch videos of the demo runners so people who aren't racing they show us how to do the course essentially and the different lines that we could take and then we analyse on the bank. So we visualise and we watch the video and that sort of thing. Yeah, I do. I want to explore this more. I want to explore two aspects. Like 
obviously the different mental focus strategies that you do in training, but also that you do right before you go down that run. And then also I want to think, talk about like what happens when things don't go to plan when you hit a gate, like how do you get back on track? Yeah, that's interesting um, because some of my best races, uh, well, our sports scientist, Nick, he um, sent me a document recently that had a graph of all the gates in a run that I have touched. And the gate I have touched the most has always been gate one. Like I, in a World Cup final, I don't even know how many times I've touched gate one and then gone on to pull out the most incredible run and, and win that race. And it, if it happens in gate one, it's it, like it, it switches me into an extra gear because clearly I wasn't focused enough coming into the first gate. And that kind of, yeah, boosts me into another gear. Whereas if it happens further down the run, maybe gate 12 or gate 18 or something, that's where the focus maybe might drift and you might make another mistake after that and it's like a snowball effect. So it is something that I have to work on constantly in training, that never give up sort of attitude of, you know, you haven't done the perfect combination of gates. So you've got to still keep it together to the finish um, and not let that distract you, you know, not let that two-second penalty affect your race plan because you know that that's two seconds added to your time. You don't want to rush the rest to try and make up two seconds. Um, so the mental skills, yeah, it, it's, look, it's constant learning for me and I think racing experience has made a big difference and I get better with each race that I do. Um, but to come back to the start of your question in terms of what I'm thinking of before I race, I usually just try and visualize the run in my head and in my in my mind I'm looking at where the boat needs to be, the key strokes I need to do, and then just, you know, the 30 seconds before the start, I just try and clear my head and, and just focus on the breath or on the buzzer counting down um, and then hope that I can just do it all on autopilot and just trust my skills. So much memory work that you're doing yeah. as well as the physicality. <laughs> And memory works incredibly, you're fatiguing on two levels, like the mind to remember everything, the mind to cope when things don't go to plan and the physicality of the fact that your sport is like incredibly demanding on your, you know, your upper body and everything as well. I, I'm so fascinated. How long, like roughly, and I know it would be different per run, but how long are you going down these things? It's only a, like a hundred seconds or 115 to 20 second efforts. Um, and it's, you know, when you're saying the memory that's involved, it's on a race, it's quite simple because there's 25 gates, but when you're going to, um, train in a new venue at training, there's like a hundred gates out on the course. And I always remember when I go to Prague in the Czech Republic, they have the most gates out of anywhere in the world. And it takes me a good two days to try and remember a course because when we're training, there's just so many gates out you, you forget where you are what gate you're meant to take but in a race it's actually a bit more simple because there's only you know that the gates are out there those, those are the gates you have to take so um, visually it's a lot easier and it, I guess it's to compare it to say like a trail run you know you get so used to the run you know exactly where your foot needs to go when you're jumping on a rock and avoiding that tree um, route or you know y- your body just gets used to it and your mind knows the subtleties of the venue um and I guess it just comes with practice and training and that's the sort of thing that we work on at training I'm going to give you an interesting um story so I'm I'm part Czech and it's interesting to yeah I am my my 
my grandfather was from Slovakia. My grandmother was from Czechoslovakia. Wow. So, uh, Dobry so den. Not all my family's still there. <laughs> oh, my good, good work. You're probably going to better than me. My dad's going to listen to this going, Sam, you should have been out fluently. I have a conversation with her afterwards. And, I, and I'm the one that lets down the side. So you, you're saying that there's more um, gates when you go to check in the training sections. Well, I wonder if that's a part of their psyche. So there's this um, long-distance runner back in the day. His name was Emil Zodopek. And when he he had, like, the record for the marathon, yeah. and people always asked him how he trained, and he said, I train in army boots. Oh. And I wonder if it's something about, like, the psyche where, like, make the training harder so yeah. the race is easier. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the Czech Republic, the athletes there are the best in the world, and the canoe slalom is their national sport. Like the World Cup in Prague is the most incredible World Cup because everyone is there to watch and to cheer and the atmosphere is electric. So I think they do train really hard and they do a lot more complex training. Um, technically, they're excellent. So, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, that's your competition. I love it. I, didn't, I mean, I, I've never been there. My sister went when she was younger and my parents have gone repeatedly. But because of my sport, like all my breaks would always be going to like other parts around the world. Yeah. So it is a part of my heritage that I feel that I haven't taken the time to be connected to. And it's something that you think about now when we see that our geographical mobility is being potentially yeah. impacted because of you know the global pandemic that we're in and I you know I can't help but feel this oh my goodness this is part of my family that I've never really taken the time to get to know how are you coping right now on many fronts like firstly you were meant to be going off to Japan you were <laughs> meant to be doing the Olympics in August you know there's a date have they have they set a new date or is it very yeah. much up in the air no they've um thankfully they've set a date yeah that's that um, period leading into the decision was quite difficult because in Australia we hadn't really been, I mean, we'd been affected by the virus, but not as uh, badly as in Europe. So for us, we were still able to do things, but there was this impending, yeah, there's a decision coming. Surely the Olympics can't go ahead when you see everything that's going on overseas, but there's no decision that's being taken. Where are we? What are we doing? And I remember going to training and just being like, Surely the Olympics aren't happening. There's no point in me doing this really hard, awful session. Like the sessions mm-hmm. that are numbered, you know, I might not be able to paddle here in the next few weeks. So those last sessions were just about enjoyment. And I'm glad we made the most of it because we only had about one or two sessions left when I had those thoughts. And then they made the decision to postpone the games, which is, I think, the best call, of course. Um, and now there's a new date. It is literally... I think it's it's actually a, a year on, so the 23rd or the 24th of okay. July um, of 2021. So it's good to have a date. It feels so far away and it's quite challenging, definitely for a lot of athletes um, because some of them had plans to retire, some wanted kids, some want to study, some are fine. I'm kind of in a position where a year doesn't affect my whole life. Um, it is frustrating because I felt so ready, but I know that it's okay. You know, I can, I can wait an, an extra year. It doesn't throw my whole life out of whack. Um, but it is going to be hard to imagine a year without travel, without competitions maybe. Um, the International Canoe Federation is going to make a decision at the end of June whether or not we have World Cup events in October or November. Um, 
So we're waiting to hear about that. But even if there are, you know, the Australian government has said we might not be able to travel all year. So I'm not sure I'd be able to attend. So it's kind of that, yeah, coming to terms with um, a year of no movement when I'm so used to travelling all the time to different race venues, to different training camps, because that's a big part of my sport is, is that adaptability. So I need the constant change and variety. Um, and I'll definitely miss that this year. And it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. Do you, are you getting some kind of professional support, at least, you know, psychologically in coping with this huge shift? Yeah, I think the AIS um, and with Paddle Australia have done a great job of providing athletes with support, the AOC as well. So we do have access to sports psychology if we need it. Um, they've also done a big push around the mental health space, but also the transition space for athletes. So there's heaps of like online learning and webinars happening at the moment, um, which I'm doing as well just to try and stay busy and, and do other things. I think it's important because I'd actually planned to study after the Games, which now has been pushed back a year. I am frustrated that I could have started this year. Like it's, it's that whole readjustment and recalibration that athletes are having to deal with at the moment. And when you can't do what you normally do with training as well, that takes a big chunk of your time out of your day as well. So I'm trying to get into a routine, but we've, we've, we've had a lot of support and I'm lucky that um, I, I live at home. So I'm with my family. I'm not isolated by myself either. So it is, I think, challenging for those overseas who were in different positions in really strict quarantine, I think that would have been challenging as well. How do you feel your days now? Um, so I'm, I'm try, like I said, I'm trying to get into a routine, which is kind of hard some days, but I am able to paddle outside still so on my own on the river or in a small group, social distance, physically distancing. Um, and just being outside, you know, you realise, how grateful you are to be able to get out and I go on the Nepean River and just up the board it's beautiful um or in the Blue Mountains and that that I think I try and you know do that in the morning and then in the afternoon I might do a gym session I've got a little home gym set up at home from all the weights in our gym kind of got um separated between the athletes we all took a little bit home so we can do a bit of maintenance work (laughs) and then in the middle of the day I have been um yeah doing a little bit of learning or watching video review of past races or Tokyo and just trying to get myself doing some mental work around that I think has been quite good Uh, I've been working with um Nam Baldwin he's like one of our performance coaches one of my performance coaches for Red Bull love him yeah so it's it's been good to have the time to work on other things as well um so that's been great and my grandma lives with us at the moment so We've had to be really careful, but it's also been lovely to spend time with her and cook with her and learn some of her recipes and play cards. And yeah, I've, I think I've been coping quite well um, and trying to make the most of the situation and enjoy those moments because I know hopefully things will get back to a bit more of a normal life. But um, these moments, you know, with my grandma, I probably these are the moments to, to make the most of. You do have a, a mind that's, uh, I, I think, it's quite good at adapting. You know, your sport requires you to adapt and I don't know what came first, like the chicken or the egg, <laughs> were you that type of person, which is why the sport suits or has the sport helped you hone that in because, you know, everything that you're talking about is you're acknowledging the challenging state, but the, the next thought is the silver lining. 
and I kind of call that a realistic optimism. Yeah. And your sport's a sprint sport, but now you've got an endurance game of the fact that there's another year mm. of preparation of, you know, getting better, but then also realizing you can't go at 120% for 12 more months. Like there has to be a build up again, yeah. even though you felt that you were built up. Yeah, it is, it is um, challenging to sort of think about the periodization and when do we relax, when do we build back up. I've kind of had like a month of a bit more relaxed training, um, you know, relaxed eating. I've done a lot of baking, put on a little bit of weight. <laughs> and have a meal. <laughs> you know, my body's like, this is your first winter. You need to get ready. This is your winter coat. Like, <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I think I've had a little bit of a – a little bit of downtime but I've also enjoyed the challenge of trying to stay fit and um stay active and it is it is a long game like you say it's going to be really hard to also stay motivated for that whole year so that's why it's important to be disciplined um especially when there's no competitions happening and I think I'm lucky I'm not in a sport that is so uh like in, in some sports where the physicality is the most important or one of the biggest factors, you know, in, in athletics and swimming, in some of those sports where the tapering has to be an exact science. Um, for us, it's such a technical sport that I don't feel the pressure of getting this periodization, you know, exactly correct because I know that mm. I can, a lot of it is based on my technical. Yes, I have to be physically ready and fit, but it doesn't have to take this whole year to get to that point, if that makes sense. So um, for that, I'm, I'm still trying to build my base and, and do a lot of work in the physical side of things, but I know that's not going to be the most important factor and that it, it's not an exact science for us. Can you tell me more about the work that you've done with Nam Baldwin? You know, he's an elite performance coach, not just working alongside yourself, but also the likes of Mick Fanning. Yeah, so um, I think it's been really great to have the opportunity for Red Bull to connect with different athletes and also different um, coaches and, and ways of training. And I've been working with Nam, oh gosh, I think the first time was probably 2014 when I met him or 2015. And just the breath work side of things, the focus and the flow is what we work on and just being able to control and, and regulate my emotions under pressure. So the work with Nam is really quite, quirky and different to you know someone who hasn't been exposed to that sort of stuff before like there's maybe a physical circuit but at the same time it's throwing tennis balls at you and maybe asking you to say something at the same time and talk to him and it's just all these you know all these distractions and all this stimulus and you've got to stay controlled and calm which is a little bit like what I do on the white water there's so many different things being thrown my way and distractions and um, things to think about on the rapids but at the same time, you've got to remain centred and focused. So, yeah, the work with Nam has been great. And even during this time, I've been catching up with him um, online and just chatting through different things we could be working on. Um, and, yeah, he, he's brought a lot to my competition and racing mentality as well. Yeah, I did a speaking conference with him, a leadership one, and he got everyone in the audience to do like a breathing exercise, like really rapid breathing, jumping up and down and then calm. Yeah. And you could see like how you can distill focus amongst chaos. Yeah. And he he spoke about his experiences with you and 
he, he makes me, he thinks, talks a lot about the one percenter. Yeah. You know, what does it take to get you from being the best, but to being unbeatable? And was he, did he play any role in you getting that surgery um, on your deviated septum? Was it about a year or two years Yeah, ago? that was um, end of 2018. <laughs> yeah, actually, the first time I met Nam, he made me do this alternate nostril breathing um, that was like diaphragm diaphragm breathing through your nostrils but really fast and I realized that I sucked like I was like I can't get air up my nostrils like and I'm not you know I'm not sick or anything like this is really hard and I kind of just thought well that's how I'm built maybe I need you know maybe this kind of breathing is not for me and then I went Mm. to a different breathing course with Patrick McEwen um he does the Buteco method and I remember chatting to him at the end and he was like, actually, you have a really deviated septum. Like, that's maybe something you could look at. And I was like, yeah, but it hasn't really affected me that much. Like, I've been able to race well and things, but in looking at it from the one percenter side of things, being able to breathe is a pretty big deal. Um, so yeah. I went to a specialist and, and yeah, he he put a camera up my nose and it was, extremely deviated and so having that surgery has actually made a big difference just in the way I sleep as well which is obviously a big part of recovery but everyday things like going to the physio and putting my head in the physio hole I used to get like a headache and a blocked nose for the rest of the day and that's completely gone Um, I'm not as congested if I do get sick I don't I don't stay congested for as long so yeah it's made a difference and it's the sort of thing I was like why didn't I do this sooner um you know it was kind of not as important as like a shoulder surgery or things like that it but it's still been a big a big part of it so going back to numb now being <laughs> doing his exercises I'm like okay I see what this is meant to be doing and how I'm meant to do it <laughs> yeah but you I guess you don't know what you don't know and that's that was your baseline yeah. um, to have that deviated septum and you probably didn't know what it was like to <laughs> to have full breath, full range of breath. And, you know, recovery is an interesting thing because what what are some of the different techniques that you do to recover your mind and your body? Yeah, so um, I think a big one is sleep is very important. Hydrating is massive for me as well. I noticed if I haven't hydrated enough, if I haven't slept enough, I am like, hungover moody grumpy which also affects training um and mentally super important and this is something that I've learned through NAM over the years is to switch off and to um relax the mind and I noticed how much of an impact it had for me in 2013 at the world championships I won my first world title I was so excited thrilled top of the world yes I've won and the next day I had another race and completely bombed out because I hadn't taken the time to switch off from that event to down regulate to come back to a calm you know park it come back to that celebration later your, your job's not done yet and the next year applying that sort of relaxation method meant that I was able to balance those two events and, and win the double world title um, but in the same space it's important to do that even when it's a great result it's even more so when you've had a, a bad result or a bad training day or something and, and you're feeling disappointed and upset. Um, I found that super important to be able to bounce back the next day. So for me, it's it's um, having my cry. <laughs> if it's a bad race, let myself cry. Let myself, let myself feel the emotions and just 
then park it and move on from it. But doing a guided sort of relaxation of um, progressive relaxation of all your muscles or listening to some form of like meditation has made a big difference to be able to calm down, get your breathing right and neurologically recharge as well. I think these are great. Firstly, how you recover and then how you switch off is not just great for those in high performance states in sport. I feel when anyone goes to work, quite often they're entering a high performance mode. And I think a huge problem that we have now with like the constant connectivity to technology, we don't switch off because we always feel Mm. like we have to access that state because we're communicating with others in the world. And I think it's something like meditation and relaxation which is very hard for A-type personalities, is a critical component of us letting go physically and mentally, surrendering. Yeah, definitely. And and I'm not sure if you, you, you might have felt this when you do your big talk, Sam, but when I've done public speaking events or even uh, like Instagram takeovers or Instagram lives, I've noticed that I get into like a high heightened state of, you know, you've got a bit of adrenaline, you're ready to perform, you're ready to... Um, speak to people and you've got to be switched on and you've got to be in that flow state to present your best and get your message across and afterwards it's super important to switch off and to come back down and and I even do it then like I think it's just as important in your everyday life as it is um, on the water or in a in a sporting setting you know there are things that we go through in our personal life that can then transition into our work life and being able to separate that you know if you've had something happen in your personal life that's quite emotional it's taking it out of you like I need to do it just as much in those situations as I do when I'm going paddling oh my god I couldn't agree I hope for all the speakers who are listening to this podcast take note of that because speakers often speak about that high yeah on stage and it's you know I guess there's a degree of ego that is at play you know you're on a on an elevated platform people are listening to you they're hearing your story or your wisdom and then you get off stage and then you enter into your normal world and you feel like you can't connect or bring yourself back to neutrality Mm. Uh, and I think it's neutrality that allows us to engage um, in our home life um, where we're on the same level as everyone else and the reality is we are all (laughs) on a very, very similar level. No one's better. Um, it's just that we all have insights from the unique experiences that we go through that sometimes allow us to pass that on to someone else. Yeah. So I think the switch off and the relax is so critical just to be a functioning member of society. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, when you when you talk about coming off stage and that high, I, I like to do it through like you're walking through a door. So you're leaving wherever you've come from behind because you're walking through a door into a new energy space or, you know, you're walking home through the door to be with your family, so who do you need to be there? Or you're walking into the office at work through a door, you leave your family and whatever's gone on at home behind. And kind of we, when we're at trading, we always say, you know, you leave your baggage at the door, you leave your bad words usually at the door <laughs> and, you, and, you, and yeah. you get in and you get on with it. You're, you're 25, right? Yeah. Almost 26. Yeah, we're, we're a decade apart. <laughs> <laughs> Almost 26. I know I feel I feel like an old lady in comparison to you, but a shorter older lady. <laughs> um, you know, how long do you see yourself in this sport? Yeah, that's a great question because um, 
I, I don't know. I, I think Paris 2024 Olympics is definitely something that inspires me and, and being French as well, you know, it would be the closest yeah. thing I'd experience to like a home Olympics, even though I'd be waiting for Australia. Um, so that's, I'd be 30 in Paris and post Paris, I'm not sure because I, I guess, you know, I'm at the age where I'm also starting to think about kids and I have friends having kids and getting married and it's kind of that I do want that to be part of my life as well and I do want um, study and something else as well afterwards but I do love where I am at the moment what I'm doing my passion for it and the fact that I'm getting good results as well so as long as I am able to keep going with my body um, with my head in good space and the support that I have from my family, from sponsors, um, I'd love to keep going. But again, yeah, that, that family, you know, women are in a different position to male athletes because we do have that, that clock ticking away too. So you've got to factor that in. And for us Olympic athletes, we work in quads. So, you know, for me, it was like, well, post Rio, I was way too young to have a kid. Post Tokyo, still not on the time. <laughs> so it would be, you know, post Paris. <laughs> Oh, isn't it so funny? Like, you know, I, and I've been open about it. I accidentally fell pregnant, but being a female athlete, I don't know how I would have, you know, mentally scheduled it to, yeah, to happen. That's true. Because you're always thinking about the, the next race and am I in peak form right now? Mm. And it's even something I'm going, like, I can so see how it becomes a, a significant factor of like, you know, does this, becoming a mother, does that mean that my career is going to end because reality is being pregnant and then recovering from that? You're definitely looking at a two-year period where you're really out of the sport and then you've got to build yourself back again because I think once you've had a baby, your body is incredibly different. doesn't mean that it can't be as strong again, but it is different and you've got to learn what that body is. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's it's a huge consideration and, like, Guys are quite lucky yeah. to not have to factor <laughs> that into their sport. And, you know, are there, do you have things that you're passionate about that you see could become a, a bigger part of your life maybe once you move beyond this? Yeah, um, I think that's what I'm going to use this year for as well, is to try and explore where I want to go afterwards because straight out of high school, um, I had a really good ATAR and I was like, I'm going to do medicine. I see that, you know, I, I could, mm-hmm. I can see that. And then I went to the Olympic games and it kind of was like, actually, I love the fact that I get to travel the world and do this. And medicine's not, you know, something I can do alongside that at the moment. Um, and now today I, I don't see myself working in medicine, um, but I see myself maybe in media, maybe in speaking, but also I think I've learned so much as an athlete that I feel like I can give back to athletes in some way. And throughout my career, I've never really connected with any, well, not many sports psychologists. There have been some who've helped me a lot, but there haven't been many sports psychologists because I couldn't really, um, how do I phrase it? Like, if they haven't been through what I'm going through, how can they tell me how to feel or what to do? So having been through it, maybe sports psych or performance psych or something around that space is somewhere I could head. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of spending the time at the moment to try and, and figure out where I could find purpose and passion as well. 
And how cool is it that you already, whilst you're in this sport, you can be a speaker, you can do some work in the media. Um, it gets you to kind of see what that side of life would be like to give an indication if it's something you want to throw yourself even deeper into post-sport. Yeah, definitely. And I do enjoy all the speaking um, or presenting that I've done. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think I'd enjoy that alongside something else maybe or, you know, tie something, tie the two together. I'm not sure yet. I, need to, I really need to work in this space <laughs> because I feel like, you know, I'm such a, I'm a personality where in sport I know exactly what my goal is, what I need to do to get there. And I always thought I would have done so much better if I wanted to be a teacher or a lawyer or a, something where there's at the end I know what I'm going to be and how to get there. <laughs> so this world that we live oh. in today, everything is so, you know, people go through so many different careers and that's great to know too. Someone can start in marketing and end up in, you know, a completely different field that they love. So that's, that opportunity is there to cross over too. Oh, and the fact that our children, Jess, when you eventually have them and my son, they might be working in a space that doesn't even exist right now. And and that's the same for us. Like, you know, in 10 years down the track, you could be in something that we don't even know is a possibility True. right now. And the even though there's so much certainty in what you've done and you've kind of known what the goalposts are, there's a lot of unknown in that space. And I think you have to hold on to the fact that you are capable in the unknown, which is going to transfer to every other element of your life. And it's exciting. It's exciting that you can have different phases in your career that are entirely different, but they'll always be interconnected because this is a part of you. Like This mm. will never be away from your, you know, your soul. Thanks for the... Um... For the reassurance and the pep talk, and <laughs> thank you for those words. Oh, oh, mate, from someone who has gone from law to finance to communications <laughs> to running to speaking, you know, I I know that you do like trail running. So, and you live oh. in Penrith. You're like on the back doorsteps. I've seen your Instagram. I've seen <laughs> when you've gone out for runs. You're in the Blue Mountains, and I I want to talk about when obviously like the Blue Mountains was. A, it was literally a light in January with mm. the bushfires. What was it like for you um, to be on like the doorstep of that? Yeah, I feel so lucky to live where I do live and have the bush on my doorstep and the Nepean River on the other side. Um, yeah, it was it was very scary to see what was happening all over Australia um, with the bushfires and just that magnitude oh just it was massive and I couldn't wrap my head around it and I was actually flying home from Queensland one day and I looked out the window and I could see the bush and then the line of smoke from where the, the fires were starting and it stretched so far and it just blew my mind so my heart goes out to all the people who have been affected by the fires and and um the RSF who worked so tirelessly for it. So, yeah, look, I, we were lucky where we are. We were quite safe, um, but the fires did get pretty close to some people that I know. And also the 2013, I think it was 2013 bushfires in the Blue Mountains um, affected a lot of people that I know. So just the thought of that happening again um, was terrifying. So, yeah, it affected so many people in Australia and I can't imagine it. And I... um. I did follow what you did, Sam. I thought it was incredible, incredible, and it definitely inspired me to, to try and do more in that space too. And you did. Like, talk about the initiative that you, you did during that time. All so I guess 
um, when was it? It was coming into Christmas. It was just before Christmas. And I, one of the things I like to do to sort of switch off and take my mind off paddling um, is to paint. And watercolours I dabbled in and I have always kind of made cards for people for birthdays or Christmas and handmade them. And so I thought maybe I could make Christmas cards that people could buy and the money would go to the RFS and, and raise money for the RFS. So I decided to, yeah, I decided to paint, I think I painted almost 350 cards, um, which took me a, a lot longer than I thought it would. And I was spending basically every hour not training, like seven hours a day painting. <laughs> um, but it was great. Like I enjoyed the, I really loved the process. And I think just the fact that it was so much bigger than me and it was to raise money for a bigger cause made me motivated to do that so we raised um almost four thousand dollars I think it was three thousand seven hundred or something um which was great to think that you know little cards could make that and what was amazing was that some people um just weren't even buying the cards were supporting the the fundraiser so that was really special and I ended up making them cards too because I wanted to thank them for supporting the fundraiser so um yeah my my card making was definitely through the roof around Christmas time <laughs> I mean, I love that you got to tap into like something that's like a, a a hobby, and also see how it can connect with other people because you have a platform. Um, being an elite sports person and being like at the very, very top of your game, that people are drawn to follow and engage with what you do, and I think that beyond the fact that you were contributing. And so many people around Australia and around the world were contributing to try and um, ease the pain that people were experiencing through the bushfires. Mm. And I think it just showed humanity like play out in, in the deep, deepest, darkest times that we'll ever face, such as even now, people coming together and doing what they are talented at um, can make a difference. Yeah, the, the guys that I met from the RFS um, in Glenbrook, they were super excited by it and very very excited by the fundraiser and what they could do with that money for training or equipment and um i think we can all do something everyone can do a little bit and it's all relative to your reach or your capacity but if you can help one person that's already amazing yeah the ripple effect is always powerful I will be following in uh, eagerness to see how your training goes um, throughout like kind of COVID lockdown and, and what's to come. And, you know, you've got a big fan in me and I look forward to being able to see you in person and maybe you can, you know, take me out on the water and show me how to throw a rope with a bit yeah. more conviction than I previously <laughs> showed. I'd love to. <laughs> Likewise, Sam, thank you so much for the chat. Oh, she's absolute delight. Check out the show notes to find out any more details on Jess, including all of her social handles. Uh, over the next few weeks, we will be releasing a couple of cracker conversations, ones that have already been recorded and some in the pipeline. And just to tease out those names and get you excited, I've got Diana Ryle, who is ex-MD of Apple Australia and the first Australian female to head up an IT company. Dean Karnazes, who needs no further introduction other to say ultra marathon man. And Jordan Marie Daniel, who's made a name for herself, both as a runner and a social activist, who represents the rights of women and Indigenous people. And I will leave it at that. Signing out, and I look forward to chatting to you next time.